Thank you for downloading this podcast from our Tabar Gathering 2018. For more information on Tabar, please visit tabar-network.com. We hope you enjoy listening to this teaching. Thanks, Warwick. Thank you so much. It's lovely to see you all. Appreciate you coming. Um, Such a warm day as well. This name probably means nothing to you at all, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He invented something that we all know well. If we've got kids or grandkids, he invented this thing here. All right? Um, Everybody know? We'll try it now. We'll try it, Paul. Come on. There we go. Um, let me tell you a wee bit about that. Um, let me tell you a wee bit about it. Morrison claimed the original idea for the flying disc toy, as he called it. Come on, Paul. Yes, let's try it. Oh, hey, why? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Harold, Harold, the minister here is away down to the Andrea's seminar, so health and safety goes out the window. So, we're so he, he actually developed the idea throwing a popcorn lid believe it or not, um, with his girlfriend, Lou, who he actually later married. Um, and then they discovered that um, popcorn lids dented and crinkled up too quickly. So what he did was they used saucepan lids. Um, they developed a little business, actually, believe it or not, in Santa Monica, California, called Flying Cake Pans. That was the name of their first little business, all right? And then the war came in, and um, uh, Walter went to fly a, a P-47 Thunderbolt in the war. He was shot down. He became a prisoner of war for 48 days. And in 1946, he sketched out a design on the back of a napkin, and he called it the Whirl Away, <laughs> Whirl Away, um, for the world's first flying disc. And then in 1948, there was another investor, a guy called Warren Francisco. He paid for the molding and the design of the plastic, and he named it the Flying Saucer. And after disappointing sales, then Fred and Warren parted company. And on the 23rd of January, 1957, they sold the rights for what they now call the Pluto Platter. (laughs) So it was called the Pluto Platter. And they sold it to Wamo Toy Company for uh, a pretty um, small amount of money. And they marketed the toy, kept it with the name Pluto Platter. But in June 1957, a group of students took this um, Pluto Platter and started to play it. And they nicknamed it the Frisbee. So it was a group of students actually give it its name. And Wamo Toy Company very smartly then decided to follow the next generation down and they called it the Frisbee. Smart people. Um, so poor old um, Walter Frederick Morrison never really saw the truth and the benefit of what he invented all of those years earlier. But a toy company appreciated the next generation. And because they appreciated the next generation, this toy was born that from 1957. Um, that's the year, just the year before I was born, so you can do your maths, um, was born. And so what we often say, um, like this thing here, this thing, you know, you, you, could, you could use it as a dish, you could use it as a hat on a sunny day, but it wasn't, it wasn't born to do any of those, it was born to fly. And um, we, we all have the job as fathers and mothers and grandfathers as well to make our next generation fly. And, um, and, and, and so there's, there's, there's pros and cons in that. And that's what I would love us to talk a little bit about um, today. Because all of us were born, we're all born to, to do something and we're all born to be somebody. All born to be somebody, all born to do something. And... Um, and so what I want to talk to you, a minute or two, two, two little things that I want, to, I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you, how do, we, how do we release? And, um, and then I want to talk, I'll to and fro between these two, and then I want to talk, how do we restrict? How do we restrict? 
the next generation? How do we release the next generation? And how might we restrict the next generation? Really important. Firstly, let me jump to how we might release it, first and foremost. And one of the principles that God really spoke to me a little bit about, um, we birthed Emmanuel. I was 38 when we planted Emmanuel. A little bit of my story, I was... um, born in a, a working home. My dad owned his own company. He run quarries and stuff like that there, hence the hearing aids. So working loud machinery before we ever had the sense to put on ear protection. And um, so I grew up in that family, grew up with a bit of work, uh, work ethic and grew up knowing what it was like. Dad always had a job for you, always pushed you beyond your means. You were working machinery that you felt you weren't maybe qualified and equipped to, to work. And that was a sort of thing. And then at 21, I felt I was the youngest of seven and far away I feel the green and I was always a bit of a risk taker and so being the youngest thought rather than following all the other boys' footsteps, I would do something much to their dismay and I would do something for myself and I moved out, bought a, a, a done my HGV uh, driving license, bought an old lorry, started a little haulage company which grew over the next probably 10 or 12 years to quite a decent wee fleet. So I was a, uh, we did a lot of cross-channel, a lot of north-south back then when there was a hard border, which was awful. So many nights were, slept, were spent there in the cab of the lorry. And, um, and then in the early 90s, sort of in around 90, in 1989, um, had a really bad business deal. One of, the, one of my um, uh, biggest customers took me for 160,000 pound, which is still a lot of money today, but it was a lot of money then. Um, tried to work our way out of that. I was a sole trader. I wasn't a limited company. And it just seemed a spiral of debt went down and down. And 2nd of August, 1991, my business folded the bank here in the town, closed the doors, and we were sort of left destitute with 400,000 pounds of debt as a sole trader. So it was pretty horrific. Lost our home, lost our everything, basically. Um, but we, we had each other. We had a, had a great marriage, good kids. And so we felt we had each other and we could start again and we could start to work off that debt and do all. So I went to work for Kaywoods, um, who were a coal company here in the town where they were Queen's Key in Belfast, which is where the Titanic Quarter is now. But um, I went to work for them and they had a little coal run in Craig Evan or I pioneered a little coal run in Craig Evan and um, did it for five years. And it was out there um, in Craig Evan sort of from 91 to 96 that God really broke my heart for a community, broke my heart for the city. I began to realize things that were going on in the city that I just couldn't believe. There was poverty. There were people that, that, that had, to, had to pay me 20 pence a week for coal, um, where I had to work really hard not to allow debts to accumulate. It was really, really hard work to keep that under wraps. I had this little figure in my head, 1,100 pound was my debt figure. So once my debt in Craig Evan got over 1,100 pound, I worked hard, I wrapped doors, I went night after night. The guy who I give the run to, Kaywoods put another guy in, and after seven months, their debt was 7,000, and they had to totally close the run down. It was just, they knew it was just gonna, it was gonna um, take them out. And so it was, it was just, it was quite a, it was quite a a school of learning. It was quite a place to to grow up in, Um, getting robbed a few times, and all of the stuff that goes along with that. It was good fun. And, um, and um, it was a, definitely a great training place for, and, and in there, God broke my heart for a community. There were people who, who hadn't a stick of furniture because if it was wood, they just chopped it up and burned it. I had customers who had no doors in their house because they screwed the door. They didn't screw them off. They just prized them off and they chopped their doors up and burned it for heat. So that was the sort of stuff. And, and, I, and, and there was so much brokenness, so much, um, I just didn't know what to do with them. And Jill was alive at the time, um, and uh, Jill was, I always said she was the accelerator and I was the brake, so she had a massive heart of compassion, um, and she said to me, Phil, I said, look, I just don't know where to bring them. I don't, I'm a brother and boy, I couldn't bring them there. I, don't, I just don't know any church where they could be accepted, and she said to me, well, why don't we just make one? <laughs> Why don't you just bring them home? And I said, well, it's not that easy. You just don't make a church. So we'd know, I said this to Pete Gregg yesterday, never once do I ever remember God telling me to, to plant a church. I just, there was a need, there was a brokenness. 
And um, we began to bring these people home. I think the first morning we met, there was me and, and Jill and our four kids and two teenage girls. And I was fully donned in suit, shirt, and tie with a little podium. We put a CD on, done some worship in our front room, and I felt like a wally. I must admit, my kids were all sitting sniggering, look at Dad, in, in, in the front room. Um, so we sort of had to overcome that. But, um, but the, the rest is history, and we began. The thing about it, these couple of friends brought another couple of friends, and they brought another couple of friends and another couple of friends, and it was just a place of hope and a place where people um, tried to dare to believe in them. And so what we began to realize really quick that as... The, I remember at Christmas of 96, um, Jill and I just falling to our knees and saying, God, could you send us some normal people? Could you just send us some normal people? There just seemed to be so much brokenness. And after 22 years, I begin to realize they are the normal people because <laughs> the rest, I would say the, the, the rest of us just don't tell the truth. And, and, and all of us are broken. All of us are broken and everybody's got issues, everybody. And, um, but you know, in middle class society, we use the word fine and fine. And nobody's really fine. Everybody's dealing with something. And, um, and, and that was a lesson that I learned really soon. I also learned in the early days that as church began to grow and we moved to our first premises after a year and a half in the house, and I began to realize that 50 was a magic number for me. I began to realize that I couldn't seem to relate. When I got over 50, I couldn't seem to relate to more than 50 people in a one-to-one. I always say when we had 50 people, you could tell when somebody took a pimple on their nose. Um, but when it got to 100 people, I began to realize there was a stretch that I couldn't actually I couldn't actually manage 100 people on my own. And there was little things like that, little triggers along the way. So when we got to 200 and 300 and all of that, we began to realize that there was, a, there was something that we needed to do that, that there was a given away. So one of the things about releasing is, was a massive learning curve for me was Numbers 11. So in the, in the Jethro principle in Exodus 18, Jethro turns up to Moses and he says to Moses, what you're doing is not good. Looks like he didn't do much about it, but the, then you go to Numbers chapter 11, and in Numbers chapter 11, God then finally comes in the scene. God takes it into hand and he says, Right, Moses, go and get 70 people that you know to be leaders. And he says, Bring them to the house of meeting. And he says, I will come and I will meet with them there and I will take what's on you, some of what's on you, and put it on them. And, um, Every, every commentary that you look on, I'll spare you the agony, but every commentary that you look on that verse, you'll find that it, it says a similar spirit. So what God's saying, I'll take a similar spirit to what's in you. But I felt God revealed something to me in the reading of that passage. I felt that God said, no, it's more than that, Phil. You're gonna have to give it away. I'm gonna actually have to take some of what's in you, some of that anointing. And if you're willing to pass that on, then that's really important. Now, there's another little learning curve in, in how to release, and then we're going to talk about how to restrict. And, and another little thing that I think I learned back here, that releasing isn't easy, because when you entrust leadership, you do give it away. And that's okay when you're probably a little bit younger and you're giving it away and you're working alongside the people. When you're a little bit older and you're giving stuff away that you've done for 10 or 20 years plus, and you know that you're not gonna do it anymore, that's a different story. And there's grief in that. And you need to own that grief. You need to own it and you need to work through it. Or you'll, if you don't, you'll just become a soul. And you just become jealous of the next generation. You start to, you start to think, well, who do they think they are? You know? so, so for instance, when Tara stands on the stage this morning with Dave, the little thing that enters my head is that 22 years ago when we planted the church, she wasn't born. It's beautiful, isn't it? Rabbi, yesterday morning, wasn't born. It's beautiful. And so if we, don't, if we don't work out the mechanisms of this, and I think you should work them out quickly. And um, talking to Pete Gregg about this yesterday, he's hitting 50 next year. And I'm just saying that I think at that age, you should be starting to think. And, and Alan is 38 Dave's 35. And I'm, they don't like me telling them this, but I'm saying, guys, you're not the, you're not the young guys anymore. 
you're middle-aged, whether you don't know you don't like me telling you that, but in practical terms, you are. And so there's another generation. And so we need to be investing and start to give away into that generation as well. And so what God began to ch- challenge me about was this thing about handing over the baton. You've probably all heard about that. And I don't actually agree with it. I don't think it's... I don't think it's the right thing to do. Um, and I'll tell you why I don't think it's the right thing to do. I felt God speak to me years ago about the baton. And I felt God said to me, Phil, I've given you a baton and the only person I want you to give that to is to me. And whenever you get home to heaven, I want you to lay that baton because that's nobody else's, that's yours. So what my job then is, is not actually to pass the baton on, but actually how to raise up a generation to find their own baton. Because here's the thing, if I, give some, if I give the next generation my baton, what I'm actually saying is, I want you to do what I've done, and I want you to do it my way. And, um, and that doesn't work. And we, don't have, we, we have loads of models. Um, and so we can, we can hold on to things, and we've seen, uh, without mentioning any names, we've seen that over and over again. So... One of the things about releasing is understanding that you're going to have to give some stuff away and how to, how to help. And I'm going to give you a few little pointers at the end on how I feel we can actually raise and, and bring the next generation up to do that. How to restrict. One of the best stories, I think, in the Old Testament about restricting the next generation is found in 1 Samuel 14. And it's a pretty glum passage. It's a passage of... Um, I'll... I'll, I'll um, it's quite a long passage, so I'll, I'll highlight it a little bit without reading right through it. But what, what it is, um, there, chapter 13 tells us that, that Israel's in a mess. We know this. We know that Israel, under the, under the auspice of Saul, was a disaster. Saul reigned for 40 years, never gained an inch of territory. He just spent 40 years fighting the wrong battles. When David became king, he, he took 60,000 square mile of territory in the, same, in the same period of time, 40 years. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Because he fought the right enemy. And so this, this idea of, this idea of, of um, Saul f- continually just fighting the wrong battle, nothing ever developed. So in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, Israel's just in a mess. It's probably in its worst state ever. And... Um, there is a, there's only two swords left in all of Israel. Jonathan is one and, and Saul is the other. All the rest of the, the Philistines have wiped out their artillery. They have nothing left. So they're in a, in a desperate bad place. And in 1 Samuel 14, Saul is hiding in a cave with his army and he's in utmost fear. The Bible tells us he's in fear and trembling. And... Um, and what happens is Jonathan just gets bored in the cave. He just, there's something happens in Jonathan's soul and he, he sneaks out of the cave, right, with his armor bearer. And here's what the Bible says. Um, let me find the place. Um, no one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, the other was Senna. One cliff stood to the north and the other to the south. Jonathan said to the young armor bearer, come, let us go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. So here's a boy, well, a young man, sitting in a cave with his dad, bored to tears, climbs out over two rock faces. The Bible is careful to give us the, even the names of them. He climbs out over two rock faces and then he climbs up a muddy bank on his hands and knees with nobody but an armor bearer to fight thousands of people with the little idea, just perhaps, just perhaps God might work on our behalf. But anything's better than sitting in there. Anything's better sitting in there under the restriction of a, of a person who's living under fear of losing control. And that's what Saul was. Saul was just a man who was under fear of losing control. And and if we're going to raise another generation of leaders, I'm going to tell you here now, you need to lose that fear because I'll assure you, you will lose control. (laughs) I'll assure you, you will lose control. That's what father and son. I have a son who lives in London and um, I was over with him recently and... um, Jumped onto a, jumped onto a, a train 
He met me in Great Victoria Street. He lives in Wanstead in London with his wife. And so I met him in Great Victoria, jumped on a train. We went down into London for the day. We got a tube here and a tube there and a tube somewhere else. And then we back to his house over, we went over some cable car over the Thames. It was incredible. On another train, ended up in a bus and boom, we were back at his house. And I said to him, son, isn't that amazing? He's 31. And amazing, I said, like, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if I'd have been London with you, I'd have been holding you for, I'd have been holding your hand for a grim death. I'd have been saying, and I'd have been, I'd have been reading. I said, you know, from I met you in Great Victoria Street, I never looked at one chart. I never looked at one line. I couldn't tell you whether we were in Central Line, District Line, or Church Walk Line. I couldn't tell you what I was on because he, he, he led because that's what happens in the next generation. And there's something beautiful about it. And if it, don't, if it happens naturally in families, why, we sh- why should we be afraid of it happening in the church? Why should we fear the next generation of leaders rising up in the church? If we're not afraid of it happening in our home, why would we ever restrain it in the church? And, and, and so what I, I learned, and it, it took me a while, what I learned was it's, it's, it's natural and it's supernatural and it's beautiful. So Claire is Paul's daughter. Claire has been playing the keys all day yesterday in worship. Um, she now bears my name. She married uh, my cousin's son, whatever that is. So Paul loves this that his daughter is now called Claire Emerson. So, um, so, <laughs> so um, but Claire, Claire Paul, Paul's been about Emmanuel from Claire. Was just I have photographs of her, just a little girl. Um, now she's Mrs. Emerson leading worship on the stage. There's, a, there's natural beauty to it, but it's supernatural. And if we, if we don't learn to release it, we'll restrict it. I, 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 we have this little myth in church that we say sometimes, you hear church leaders send all the time, our oh, stuff's plateaued. You know, it's like, it's like a bit of a plateau where we're not going up and we're not going down. I need to tell you something. Sorry to spoil your, or burst your bubble. There's no such thing. You're either going up or you're going down. Plateau is just, we we fool ourselves. And if it's plateaued, I can assure you it's going down. And um, we need to try and figure out how to to take it up again. And so this idea that David, um, that that Saul just restricted everything that that had happened was was desperate. And so there there needed to be there needed to come something that would release this next generation of leader. And what I'd love to do, I'd love us to, to, to chat through, I think of 10 little things. I'll write them up on the board and then I'd love to open it because I'd love it to be a bit two-way if you feel there's something that I'm not, I don't have all the answers and I haven't done everything right in this, by the way. And um, one, one little experience happened back about um, four years ago um, when the church was about 18 years old 18, maybe 19 years old, could be about three years ago. One day, sitting in my office with Dave and Al, I said, coming to September, we're about to come to do vision. And I said, guys, you know, I've been doing vision for the last 19 years, vision day. I I was sort of looking them to, 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 you know, give me a bit of a pat on the back, really. And, um, you know, I love, I love vision. I'm a visionary. And so I love doing the vision Sundays and all that. And I said, guys, you know, what, what, what would you guys think about doing vision? Now, what I wanted them to say was, no, 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 Phil, you do the vision. You're the, you're the leader and you're the visionary and you should do the vision. That's what I wanted them to say. That's not what they said. They, they were all over this thing like a rash. And, and so I, I sort of come out of that meeting a bit deflated because I was thinking, oh, I sort of wanted them to sort of say, no, no, Phil, you're the vision. You need to do the vision. So, so with, within a sort of a 15-minute conversation, I remember walking out of that meeting thinking, they're doing the vision in September. Uh, this, this, how am I going to deal with this? So I thought, I know it'll happen. They'll do it and they'll realize I'm better at it. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so, so they did it. <laughs> that is true. That is true. They, they, they actually realized they were better at it. And, and it, was, it was quite funny because sitting in the front row of church that day, I remember thinking it was 80, 
85, 90% of me, I'll go 90, it might have been a wee bit less, was, was just saying, this, this is what I was born to do now, at this age was to raise the next generation, see them fulfill their dreams, see them fulfill their purposes, this is brilliant. But there was 10, 15% of me just grieving. I was, I was aching, I was hurting, because I thought, do you know what? I'm probably never gonna do that again. Because if you, if you try to take it back, it's like, it's like turning an oil tanker in a canal, isn't it? It's just going to be carnage. And um, we've seen it happen so many times where leaders have tried to take back power. And so, um, so I didn't really know what to do with it. So we meet every Monday morning for a coffee. So we do staff meeting 9 to 10. And after staff meeting, Dave and Al and I usually have an hour where we sort of debrief what's going on. And, and um, so... About 10 minutes into the conversation, one of the lads says to me, Phil, you're very quiet this morning. I says, guys, I'm hurting. I'm really hurting. And they said, what's happened? What happened? I said, you guys did it. And they sort of looked at me and I said, what did we do? And I said, you've done vision yesterday. It was brilliant. But I said, you're going to have to help me. I'm hurting like mad. And they were a bit shocked that I'd sort of owned this to them. But you know what? There was a beauty in it. And, and since that, we've been able to journey it together. So <laughs> to the point where they, they actually know me so well, they say, Phil, are you okay with this? Or are you just saying you're okay? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, but you know what? It, uh, to encourage you, if, if you're in the process of this, and some of you know and some of you don't, but if you're in the process of this, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. There is such a beauty in it. And, and it took me a while to find that. It took me a while to find the beauty in it. Um, and, and now I love it. Now I love it. And there are moments. There are moments that you, you do you think, oh, I did that for 20 years and I'm not doing it anymore. And as Warwick says, highly unlikely to do it again. Uh, and so you, 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 you have to work through that process because if you don't, you'll restrict the next generation. I'm going to give you 10. The, uh, uh, the definition of a father is this. You're never jealous of your kids. Never jealous of your kids. The opposite's true. You're actually saying, don't do that. I did that. And, and you'd, you'd be better doing it this way and this way. So you're never jealous of your kids. That's really important. And, and, and what we need to do is we need to push our next generation out of the cave. We need to push them out. And I actually think better than that, I think we need to actually, because you're holding on to your bat and remember, I think you need to go with them. And so this idea where you actually just hand over someday and you say, right, I'm away, I'm retired, and you, you, you take it on, I just don't think works. Um, I think there's something about running. And, you know, I think of people like Stanley who do this in the business world with your sons, and it's just so beautiful to watch that. And I often say to, the, to, to Al and Dave, who probably I work with the closest and see Rick down there as well, you know, I say, guys, I, I see it as a bit of a relay and we're on the track and, and at this stage of my life, you're probably going to run a wee bit faster than me. But, you know, just keep going because you'll, you'll catch up with me again. <laughs> you know what happens? Because I'm just, I think I'm in the same track and if we can keep in the same track, even though we're running a little bit slower, we, we, keep, we keep running together and there's something beautiful about that. Um, what I've done, Warwick's one of our elders, what I've done is I've just led a 10-year plan. I'm 60 this year, and I've always tried to live in decades. So what I've done is I've sort of presented our elders with a 10-year plan. I think there's some energy left in me yet, and there's some things that I'd love to see handed over, but I'd love to run it for the next 10 years. I'd love to, and, and I can decide after that, but I, I'd, love to, I'd love to give it my all for the next 10 years. Not in a senior leadership. Again, I need to say that probably about three years ago, um, felt God really speak to me about the senior pastor rule. I was senior pastor, had been from church, had been planted. Kind of weird, a senior pastor when there was very few people there. And, and, and I remember feeling that it had created a bit of a ceiling and it was it's looked on when you're senior pastor, it sort of looked on like a bit of a CEO title, which it is the way. And I felt that the guys had grown and earned res responsibility and they'd earned a right to, to lead in some shape or form. So I wasn't dead sure what to do with this. Presented it to the elders, you know, said, guys, I think I should lay the title down. What do you think? And then Dave and Al and I went to Andrea, who has been like a mummy to us for years, for the last guts of 20 years of her life. That's why this morning was so emotional. She knows her journey. She's been through the pain and the mud and the mire with us. And um, 
And we went to see Andrea. We actually stayed with her for a night. And, and we, 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 she's just brilliant in this sort of stuff. She tried to tease out what was going on in each of her lives, where we seen each of her roles. And we ended up being three lead pastors. Some churches think, how does that work? But it does, doesn't it? It, it does work with us. So we ended up three lead pastors. So I don't, my title is not senior pastor. I'm a lead, one of the lead pastors in Emmanuel. And my role is just father of the house. Dave is one of the lead pastors in Emmanuel. And his role is discipleship and staffing, looks after all our staff. And Al is lead pastor in the house and his role is Portadown, looks after the church in Portadown and Tabar. So he heads up all the stuff that we've been doing over the last couple of days. Couple of things and then we'll open it up for some questions. All right, it's three. So I'd love, I'd love a good bit of time for questions. Um, they're simple points, but they've been quite profound to me. All right. Um, the, the first thing I would say is you need to believe in the next generation. You need to believe in them. You need to entrust leadership means to, I'm trusting you to do that. It's not micromanaging. It's not saying, well, I better check up that you've done that right. Now, I know there's, there's accountability in it all. I'm not saying that you do that loosely or do it without, any, without thinking it through, but you've got to believe in the next generation, all right? Um, the second thing, which I think is quite profound as well, is that um, we need to believe in proclaiming the kingdom and letting God build the church. So we proclaim the kingdom, right? And let God, proclaim kingdom and let God build. All right? If you look all the time through the New Testament, you'll find Jesus all the time came to proclaim the kingdom. He, became, he came to proclaim the kingdom. All right? It's a good study. Sometime I haven't time to go into that. But what does that actually mean? Proclaim the kingdom. All right? Um, again, um, remember God says I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it I have a story I can tell you about that but I'll tell you it in a moment or two and I often say in proclaiming the kingdom rather than building the church we actually equip the next generation and we equip humanity to find a way home so there's something about proclaiming the kingdom that's really really powerful um, I think this one is really important um, the need to restore A hunger for the word. We need to restore a hunger for the word in the next generation. All right. I think we live in a generation that maybe live in social media and all the stuff. And I think we need to restore a hunger for this. I think we need to we need to work out how to get the next generation hungry for the word. Um and, and there's loads of different ways we can do that, but I think it's really important. And, and, and there's, there's so many methods uh, of being able to do that now, because um, uh, I, I love this, you know, it says in um, 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a, a criminal, but God's word is not chained. What a verse. God's word is not changed. So we need, to ha we need to figure out how to restore this into the next generation because if, they're gonna, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna entrust it to them, you need to make sure they're well enough qualified to do it with a, and not, not just with methodology and not just with a fresh strategy, but actually based and, and established on the word of God, which is so important. And I, I love that, you know, I always say it's funny how you find Bibles left behind. You used to find Bibles left behind. You don't find many iPhones left behind, you know. <laughs> don't leave those around so quickly. And, and I'm, I'm not religious in that I can't, you know, that you can't read your Bible on your phone. But there's, it's interesting, actually. I noticed this in, in, even in our staff meeting lately. I noticed we do a Bible study every Monday morning. So we meet with our staff and we... we we meet nine to 10. And so the first little thing is we, we, any fresh stories, the stories have to be current. So they can't be any more than one week old. So the, any current stories, anything that's happening, we take five, 10 minutes to do that. And then I, I lead a Bible study. We've done Hebrews in the middle at this moment in time. We did Matthew, we did Hebrews. This moment in time, we're doing Romans. And so I lead that little Bible study and we always read round you know, so there's 19 of us in the room and we read round a verse at a time and just go round till the chapter's read. Interesting watching, just noticed this recently, 
how the younger generation all do read off their phone. The only thing about a phone, I, and I know there's different ways you can do this, and maybe, they can, maybe they're just smarter than I am, but there's something about scribbling over your Bible, isn't there? There's something about writing a little note or a date the side of your Bible. And I've noticed when we go back to study it that, you know, if you have it in a page in front of you in a few wee notes, it, it, well, maybe I'm just being old-fashioned, but I do think we need to restore a hunger for the Word of God. Fanta that I interviewed last night, if you're Fanta and I meet up quite regular, and I remember saying to Fanta about, about a year ago, I said, Fanta, I'd love you to pray for me because I feel like I've lost a hunger for the Word. And he goes, Phil, it's not like you to lose a hunger for the Word. And he, Fanta knows me well and he knows I love the Word. And I said, just, I feel I just don't have the same desire. And he says, well, tell me what you're doing. Tell me your practices. And I started to tell him my practices. And I, it, it turned out as I told the story of what I'd done in the, in the months previous, I began to realize that I tried to go digital. I got an iPad and I thought it was cool. And um, I'd got an iPad. I was reading my Bible off an iPad and I... I and, and, he, and he says, Phil, you know, that might work for the next generation. I just don't think that works for you. And he says, I, I think you need to get back to paper. Now, that might sound really silly, but I'll tell you something. I went back to my paper. I ditched my iPad, give it to Daniel, <laughs> ditched my iPad and went back to paper. And there was something rose in me again, the love for the word. And I just, you know, I'm, that's me. You could be saying that's maybe really, really silly. But um, number four, um, believe in family. Believe in family. Um, I think this is one of the most important things. When, we, when, when Emmanuel started, it started around the kitchen table and we said we wanted to be three things. We wanted to be a family, we wanted to be a hospital, we wanted to be an army. And we've never lost that vision. Those three things. We wanted to be a family. We wanted to be a hospital. We wanted to be an army. So a, a family, keep together. Of course, we want to be a family on mission. That go do something. Just don't want to be a family that all sitting lovey-dovey. Like if you did that, if you're growing up family now, we're living with you day in, day out, you'd go mad. You know, because we, we need to be in mission. They need to go raise their kids and, and do their things and fight their battles. And, and we come together at strategic moments and they're amazing. But... But, and the church needs to be the same. Of course, a hospital, we all need a hospital. Don't want to live in it, but we all need it from time to time, and so it's really important. And so believe in family. And I say this really, this is one of the most important things, you know, and um, uh, at, the, at, at this moment in time, there's four or five people coming to, into, into our church family that are transgender, and... Um, one in particular, without mentioning a name, just breaks my heart because um, they've just never experienced the love of a family. And I say to, to Lorraine all the time, I say, Lorraine, you know, there's something in me would just love to bring them home for a couple of months and let them live in a family and let them know what a father's love's like, let them know what a mom's hug's like, let them know. One, one of them said to me recently, I, I, I was chatting I was chatting to her about some stuff and she said to me, um, um, I had invited her over to our house for a meal and she says to me, what do you mean a meal? And I goes, for, for tea, for tea. And she goes, um, she says, well, like, what do you do for tea? And I said, what do you mean, what do we do for tea? We eat food. She says, but what, what, how, how do you eat it? And I said, with her mouths. And, and I, she teased this out a bit. She'd never sat with a family at a meal. She's 20 years of age. She'd never, so she says, you, 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 sit, you sit together? And, and she said, what do you do? What do you, what do you do? I said, we eat our meal and we ask each other how the day went and is there anything you'd, you'd love to give thanks to God about today? And she goes, wow. <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? So we need to continue to believe in a family. Um, here's number five. Number five. Um, we need to believe that our culture that we're setting is stronger than that of the world's. That our culture stronger than the world's. 
got to believe that we have a stronger culture. If we don't believe that, we're, we're, we're goosed. And we need to let the up-and-coming generations know that the church is strong. She's not a weak, shabby bride, all right, with no morals. Who in their right mind would want a bride like that? His culture was, was just to do this. Um, and I love this because whenever Jesus came to earth, he... We, we had a guy over last weekend and he, he mentioned a couple of little things that really caught me. He said that when, when Jesus, when he got together with his disciples, he just did what he, what he came from. <laughs> he just, he, you know, he came from absolute unity and family. In the beginning, Elohim, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He came from such unity and such family strength that he, he, actually, he actually modeled what he came from. And we need a model. We need to understand that our culture is stronger than the culture of the world. Um, and here's number six. We need to teach the next generation, the next gen, how to face struggles and not run away from them. That is so important, all right? Life isn't just one of bliss, all right? So we need to, we need to teach our next generation that uh, they, they can handle challenge and not run away from them. Um, number seven, um, need to believe that the young people are the church of the day. So, all right, I often say, if we think of them as the church, if we think of them as the church of tomorrow, by the time tomorrow comes, we won't have a church. They're the church of today. And so we need to, we need to invest in them, all right? Um, and number eight, number eight, um, we, need to, we need to teach them to follow. We need to teach them to follow. Teach to follow. That is so important. Um, and we need to teach them to follow the right people. We need to teach them to follow models of people who, who build the church up and don't tear it down. Um, I, I, I love the church. I fell in love with the church when I was a boy. I was a weird child, but I did. I fell in love with the church when I was a boy. I was a key holder for a little brethren assembly when I was 13 years of age. My dad entrusted me with the keys. I had a bunch of keys and a chain. And so I would go to the little gospel hall, which was just three or four hundred yards up from our home and I would put the heat on on a Sunday morning. I would rise early, put the heat on. I, I, was, I was there first. I would give out the hymn books. I, I, I turned the heat off and locked up the church, the little hall. I did the same on Wednesday night for the prayer meeting, Bible study. And, and there's something about the church. I've always loved the church and so I love the, whether the steeples or dozen of steeples, whatever. There's something about the church and we need to believe in the church. We need to believe that that that, that people should be following this thing called the church and believing in it and, and following people who build it up and don't tear it down. Something really beautiful about that. And we need to train our, our young people how to be church builders and not church attackers. And then number nine, last one, and then we'll, we'll ask some questions. We need to believe in prayer. Pete's sitting in the front row. Pete's my son-in-law. Um, and uh, he's part of my family. And uh, I pray for my family every day, every single day, by name. Um, and I pray for them twice a day. I pray for them first thing in the morning. And I pray for them last thing at night. And I began to realize many, many years ago as a father that, that the church needed that. And so when your sons become brothers, you, you need to pray. And I asked you about your next generation. When was the last time you fell to your knees and had a list in a prayer book somewhere where you mentioned them by name to the throne of God? When was the last time you, you picked out a dozen or two dozen young um, up-and-coming leaders younger people that you feel something in and just say, God, I want you to burden my heart that every day I will blast their names before the throne because something 
Every single one of us are in the room, I think, and I believe because someone prayed about us. And I think we're going somewhere where we've never been before. I think there's a new revelation has dawned in our church. I think there's a, um, the church has taken a paradigm shift. There is no doubt about that. And I, I do think that there's something for the moms and the dads as we run together with our next generation and believe in them and entrust leadership to them and understand, here's a little thing, um, I find this more so probably with Dave and Al um, because I work closely with them. I now need to know, I think they need to know when to follow me, but I need to know when to follow them. So, because um, they're, they're so, so at the conference, Al's, Al's in charge of that conference, so I'm, I'm under his leadership. Um, so if he says, Phil, do this, I'll do it. If he says, don't do that, I'll not do it. Because he's the one. He's the one's going to give us an account in our elders of how it's went. Because we've charged him with it and we've laid it on him. So, so I need to follow him. So the last two days I've been following him and that. There have come moments in church where other things happen, where I know that I need to take the lead and they need to follow me. And it's understanding that little dynamic. It's understanding when it comes to stuff with discipleship. We follow Dave. We say, all right, Dave, you're leading the charge. We're going to follow you with that. Does that all make sense? Any, any questions? We've quarter past. We have 10, 12 minutes or so. Any questions? Anything you'd like me to elaborate on or... I think, I think one of the things is, is, is recognizing gifting. You know, not, not everybody's gifted to do the same thing. Growing up as a brethren boy, what the, like it was all, you, you were, every, every brethren boy was a preacher. You know, so you could see the first thing they wanted to do was push you on the platform to give your testimony. Like, it, like I, 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 it horrified me. I'm glad they did it in a way, but there's other kids that just knew it was just never going to be their gifting. And so I think there's a big thing in recognizing gifting and recognizing and, and building something of, of self-confidence. I think, we live in a gener- I think we live in a generation that do lack confidence. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, my daughter who led worship, Pete's wife, um, leads a dance school called Vibe and... Um, the Vibe Dance Academy, and one of the things I love about Lisa's dance school is that it's, you know, it's, not, it's not just teaching kids to dance. That's, that's secondary for Lisa. The big thing is she teaches them how to believe in themselves. You know, she, she, I often look and th- I, I see sometimes, I see the kid who maybe, I, I don't know how to say it right, but not the right shape to dance, I suppose, is a, without being cruel. <laughs> what? I'm not a good dancer, but how she has actually believed in that person and believed in that young person and brought her out to believe in herself. There's something beautiful about building confidence. So I think one of the big things is, is, you know, send a young person, like that kiss of affirmation that Andrea talked about this morning, isn't it? The kiss of affirmation. Like I've spoken to somebody after the service this morning that just killed them, you know, because they have a... They have a child who's wayward, very, very wayward. And, and he said to me, every, every single night, he says, when, she, when she's in bed, I said, I kiss, kiss her in the forehead, just affirm her. She's been doing it now for a year and a half and she just hasn't returned, you know, but you just keep doing it, haven't you? Mm, off. Yeah. That's good. That's good. And, and your first 
Yeah. I think one of the big things, that's a great point, I think is, you know, you can't, you know, like uh, one of my experiences, after, whenever, whenever um, Lisa, who's leading worship, whenever Jill died, Jill died 12 years ago, so Lisa would have been about 25, 26, and my youngest boy was 18, and the two oldest girls, Lisa and Amy, ran towards God, and the two youngest ones ran away from God. You know, they, they just blame God. Their, their, their thought was, well, we've watched mom and dad serve God all our life, and if this is what God does, you know. And, and, and I had to, with my son, I had to travel that for years and love him for who he was, not take the responsibility that he had went this way and watch him, watch him grow and watch him return. My youngest girl, the same, you know, just, you know, she used to say to me, sitting beside me today in the sessions, you know, but she used to say to me, Dad, you do anything to get me back into church? And I used to laugh and I said, you know, whether you come, whether you don't, you're still my daughter, I'm going to love you, you know? And so, and I, I couldn't take responsibility. I think that's a good point. I couldn't, I couldn't own that, you know, circumstances had allowed that to happen and, and so I, I just had to, my mom had a great wee line. My mom, you know, whenever, whenever the, my kids started to grow up and you're thinking, you know, when they were come teenagers and you were just kind of oh, pulling your hair out, that's what happened to me. Um, you know, and, you know, he said, oh, mom, I don't know, and they want to do this and they want to do that. And mom, my mom used to say, just love them, son. Just love them. They're not old yet. That was her famous line, and her famous verse was, you know, train a child up in the way they shall go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And she used to say, they're not old yet, son. Just love them. And um, does that help? Mm. Any other questions? What we do... Yeah, I know, I know. I think one of the things in, in today's generation, we have a little saying where, you know, if you're not willing, Andre has a great line. Andre says, you'll never change what you're not willing to touch. <laughs> you'll never change what you're not willing to touch. And so we have a little line where we say, how do we, how do we stay soft at the door and strong at the core? And if you're going to be a church that's accepting of people like this, transgender, gay, all of that, um, and other massive issues. If you're going to be a church that accept people like that, then you're going to have to have really strong core beliefs of what you actually believe about it. So we, we've went away as a group of elders. We've taken time. Neil's on eldership at the back there too. So we have taken time. We've actually released a document on sexuality where we could say to our church, if anybody in our church came and said, what's your, what's your take on sexuality? We can give them a document and say, there's what we believe. We've, we've prayed about this. We took a full day and studied this as elders. We read up. We, we read some um, great um, stuff on it. And so, so, to, so to, be, to be softed, if you're going to be a church that's soft at the door, you need to be really strong at the core. And you need to actually, you need to really hone in on what you believe so you can hold your, you can hold your beliefs fully and strong, you know. So for instance, you know, back, 15, 16 years ago, I wrote a policy in marriage. 18 years ago, I wrote a policy in marriage. And one of the things I said was, okay, we, we do this, we do that, and we do that, but we, we you know, and we, we worked out four, four different reasons why we would marry a person that's divorced, right? One of the reasons is if, they're, um, if the divorce happened before um, salvation, another reason if they were deserted by a non-believing spouse, blah, 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 on and on goes. And we've scripture for them, what we, what we believe, right? And then I said this silly thing, I said this, I said, well, but we won't, we'll never marry an unequal yoke. 
right? That wouldn't, that'd be totally against scripture, right? Um, one of the girls waving the flag today at the front, 16 years ago, um, walked into our church one night and asked, said, she just walked up to the front and she says, Phil, I, I, I don't know who you are, but I need to have Jesus in my life. And I led her to the Lord. She's been with us for 16 years. Turns out after I led her to the Lord that um, I found out that she was cohabiting with a guy and she had four kids. <laughs> so they were living as a married couple with four kids. So they'd, they'd just never done the vows. So she came to me about six months after she got saved and she said, Phil, we've just been reading the scripture and realized that we should be married. Would you marry us? And her husband's not a believer. He's still not. And um, my policy, I thought, oh, why did I say that? So what could I do? Could I, should I have said to them, oh no, I could never marry an unequal yoke. You need to leave him and your kids need to grow up fatherless. <laughs> so it's not black and white, sure it's not. And when you, when, you, when you step into pastoring, you enter the gray world, you know, and, and there's a world out there that some organizations just decide not to go into. So they say, oh, we don't marry anybody that's divorced. People say to me, sometimes, Phil, do you agree with divorce and remarriage? I say, I don't agree with the flu. But I get it, I get it every now and again. You know, it's silly, really. You can argue what you, you, can argue what you believe about it, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's living and living in a society where it's constantly happening, living in a society now where transgender is becoming more and more acceptable as the norm, the gay society, what do we do? Do we just, do we take the stance of the church of old and, and treat them like second-class citizens or do we love them like Jesus would? You know, so, so it's a gray world. It's a gray world and... Um, That's good. You make a decision. Yeah, that's good. Good. Or else not accepting them at all. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Can I ask, well, there's one more question here and then we'll finish. We're out of time, but sorry. It's a really good point. Um, we, we do have a very, very poignant um, leadership track. So, you know, for, 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 from our youth right up, um, it, it's probably too, it'll take me too long to explain it. We have a very organized structure in how to see people released. Um, we've also very organic structure. So we're, we believe in how, how can the organic and the organized work together. So or, organic, when I say one-on-one, -on -one, where Rick, probably one of the best illustrations of this, Rick at the back has been leading youth in the town 
longer than I can remember whenever he had her and I had as well. And he is one of the most incredible examples of the organic for me. You know, he is a very organized person. He's brilliant instructor. He's brilliant not organized as well, but just watching him do life and life with some young people and, and watching some of those young men and women that he has, he has nurtured and grown, you know, and he's not a, He's not a, he's a dad, but he's not a granda. <laughs> you know, he's a, you know, but he's, he's that sort of 30, late 30 generation that has saw the benefit over the last 10 years of really investing in the, in the teenagers. So, so it, it is very structured. I could take time and show you some of that if you, if you need it, but our time is out. So I'll, Warwick, do you want to say anything or finish? All right. Thank you so much. Bar gathering 2018. 2018.